finish up this chapter and get all sorts of good things going on in, in here that we want to try to uh, bring out. Last week, we uh, started this look at the baptism of Jesus and the, the, last week, in particular, the introduction to John the Baptist. And so we saw that the Old Testament is clear that John the Baptist, who is the Elijah to come, would proceed and prepare for the Messiah, who would at that time redeem Israel and set up a kingdom. If there's anything we're seeing in the, in the Gospels, it is that uh, they said the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom was about to begin, and we're seeing them say that. Uh, John and Jesus both understood this, that, that is, the kingdom was about to begin, and this is why they proclaimed the kingdom is at hand. John and the disciples, though, understood the when, but they did not understand the nature of the kingdom, which was the the mediatorial reign of Jesus to save the elect. In other words, the kingdom is uh, the uh, gathering of the church. And so, uh, just a couple of three verses that bring that out that we did not talk about specifically last week. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, Verse 44, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream that he can either remember the dream and, of course, what it, what it meant. And Daniel says that in the days of those kings, that is, the king of uh, Greece, uh, Medo-Persia, excuse me, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, during the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So not at the end of all earthly kingdoms, and then Christ will set up a kingdom. In the, that kingdom will begin in the days of the, earth, the kingdoms of the earth. And it shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Isaiah 9.6 alludes to Christ as king, where it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdoms to establish it and to uphold it with justice with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord, the Lord of hosts will do this. And so, like Daniel, he talks about a, a never-ending kingdom. And then, uh, one of the very clear verses in the New Testament that I think certainly helped mold my understanding of the kingdom of God, where being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so, if the kingdom of God is, as you saw in Nicodemus, something that you enter through the new birth, then it is, it, it, it is something that you are brought into in the gospel. It is spiritual. It is not something that you will see. It is something that, you know, we, we say that this local church is a gathering of the kingdom. We, we see the physical manifestation of the kingdom in in that sense. But even then we know that there can be people who come into this assembly who are not saved. And so you can't look at a church and say that is for sure the kingdom of God. It contains the kingdom of God. 
right? But not everybody necessarily is saved in the local church. And so the kingdom is within you. It is not something that uh, you can see with your eyes in that sense. And so those are a very important, I think, text for us to help us understand what the kingdom of God is. And so today we want to finish up some thoughts uh, in the first part of this chapter through verse 12 that we did not get to last week, and then deal specifically with the baptism of Jesus. And so last week, Matthew introduced us to the coming of Elijah and John the Baptist. We learned that he prepared the way of the Lord by announcing his soon, he is soon to establish the kingdom, and that one enters it through faith and repentance, and baptism was a public statement that you believed in that message. The baptism of John was that you believed in the coming Messiah, and you were prepared for him, and you understood it was, it, that you gained that through repentance, and it was kind of looking forward to the Messiah. And so baptism then becomes a new sign of a new covenant, meaning the old one is being replaced because the old covenant has ended. The that the form of baptism began with John the Baptist as they were immersed in the water. And we know that, of course, and we'll see this a little bit later, that that became the basis of the Christian baptism in Jesus Christ and the, the sign that you have entered into that covenant. Um, in the old covenant, you the sign that you were part of the covenant was circumcision. But we're now in a new covenant. We're not, as our covenant theologian brethren are confused, to think that it's the same covenant, different administration, so they think you can uh, baptize, or you can converse, or excuse me, circumcise children in the old, and therefore we circumcise them in the new because it's the same covenant. No, it's a new covenant. The old covenant was entered into by being born, by natural birth. The new covenant is, is born, is, is entered into a spiritual birth. And so the sign is different because we now identify ourselves with Jesus whose work is what enables us to, of course, uh, be placed in the kingdom and to be saved. And so uh, it's very important to understand why Jesus and John went down into the river, Jordan, to be baptized. And again, we might say a few things about that later on as well. Today, we will focus mostly on Jesus' baptism, but I want to introduce to you the Sadducees and the Pharisees, since they will be reoccurring all through uh, the Gospels. First of all, the Pharisees, uh, they were were created in reaction to the worldliness that was creeping into the Judaism in between the Testaments. You can imagine as, as most of the Jews were carried off into Babylon and later became the Medo-Persian Empire, there was a lot of worldly influence and a lot of things that became lax in keeping the covenant. And so the Pharisee sect arose to kind of re-emphasize the need to keep covenant, which was a good thing initially. But it quickly deteriorated into a judgmental, external, legalistic uh kind of legalism of man-made laws that were added to protect the original ones. So you had the original ones, and then they added man-made traditions to kind of, as a barrier, so you never even came close to breaking the original ones. 
Well, of course, if you know, if God felt they needed that, he would have instituted them to start with. So they institute more laws, and of course what happens is that they these became just as important as God's laws. And for instance, uh, they would even wash if they came in contact with someone who wasn't of the pharisaical sect, even though that was not in the original laws of God. It's easy to see how Christians can become quite like-minded. Instead of seeing sinners as needing Messiah, we see them as kind of inferior to us. Just as the, the Pharisees saw someone who didn't keep the law like they did as a sinner that they couldn't even touch. So sometimes Christians get like that. And instead of having compassion because we realize that we're just as simple as the, anybody else and they need the gospel just like uh, we do, uh, well, you got to keep our distance from these people. They're, they're not as good as us. And, and we shun them instead of carrying the gospel to them. And so the Pharisees end up not keeping the law out of thanksgiving, and because they want to praise and worship God, they start to keep the law out of merit. And those who didn't obey the traditions were seen as less spiritual, so they became very legalistic, and something that you had to do to somehow earn God's favor. And so they were kind of like the fundamentalists of the day, um, and were very legalistic. The Sadducees were on the other end of the spectrum. They were kind of like the liberals of the day. They were very compromised both theologically and politically. They they were uh, all about getting along in the world and, and making money. They were the rich uh, of the group, and uh, they compromised with the Rome in order to have that, much like the liberal church did today, where they whatever the government has them do, they're willing to do. They they uh, want to get along at all costs. They didn't believe much in the supernatural, including the general resurrection, which, like our liberals, who don't believe in miracles and things like that. They're much more concerned with political and social things rather than faithfulness and tr- to the truth of the Lord. And so they kind of, again, didn't really believe in the resurrection, so they just kind of felt like everything was going to continue on, and so you just did the best you could, you got along in this world. They were very humanistic, doing whatever they could to help themselves. They were the, the money changers in the temple, remember, that Jesus cast out. That was uh, the Sadducees. And so not much has changed. But both groups have one thing in common, that is, they had no use for Jesus Christ. He comes along. He seems to be de-emphasizing the Jews and, and Jewishness, and seems to speak more of a spiritual than the physical. The Pharisees wanted no part of that. They were looking for that physical kingdom. The Sadducees uh, didn't want any kind of kingdom. They were happy in the kingdom that they had. And so he knocks down their, the props of human merit. He condemns the, the materialistic pride of Sadducees, and for that, they, of course, crucify him. They come to John here in our text in uh, verse 7, and they want to look religious, they want to please the people, and this was a thing to do. John was very popular, so they come, trying to be part of this. And of course, John sees through that. They weren't coming to repent of their sins, they were coming to be seen of men. And he likens them to uh, a brood of vipers. And I, I read that the desert viper could look like a twig, and if you weren't, if you were picking up sticks to burn, you, if you weren't careful, 
they could pick you up and bite you. They were very dangerous. And, and Jesus later tells us that these people are leading people to hell. They preached merit, not faith and repentance. But of course, here at our church, we've got to preach what Jesus and John preach, and that is that uh, wrath, there's wrath coming. There's wrath against sinners. And there's, there's a warning there, but there's also a way of escape, of course, in Christ Jesus. So we don't preach what people want to hear. We preach what God has told us to preach. And what is very clear in his word. In verse 9, uh, some Jews believe that they would be saved based on Abraham's merits. That it wasn't so much that they thought they could earn God's favor or that they even needed to. They were children of Abraham, and Abraham pleased God. He was justified, and so they kind of felt they were going to get in on Abraham's coattails. And that's why in, in uh, John, or verse 9, John says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And so that de-emphasized their birth and their Jewishness, and didn't like to hear that. And it also certainly would hint to, later very obvious, the fact that, um, the, that Gentiles could be saved just like they could be saved. And of course, the Gentiles are dirty dogs. In fact, um, some Jews refer to the Gentiles as lifeless stones. And so if John says that God could raise up stones to, to be children, then they kind of, some would say, you know, that it's a reference to the Gentiles, and they would have been correct. So John uh, makes it very clear that their Jewishness is not going to save them. And then lastly here he mentions hell, not by its name, but talks about the fire that people would be cast into. And we, we point that out because there's a lot about hell in the New Testament, a lot about the wrath of God. It's not all about Jesus just saying, hey, we all need to love one another. Well, that's certainly true in a, in a, in a context. But the wrath of God it remains against sinners and uh, that's the message that we need to preach. It's through salvation in Christ alone. And so these things will be developed as we go on. And we need to understand that Jesus taught these things and not to uh, shy away from them. Well then, what we, verses 11 and 12 we didn't get to last week, where uh, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He says, he's going to baptize you of two things, the Holy Spirit and fire. And there's certainly different views of what that means. Um, First of all, John refers to Jesus as one who's coming who will be Lord and the King. And he's going to baptize him in a way that is better than what John's doing. John's making it clear that I baptize with water. And so we understand immediately that water baptism is inferior. It, it, it's a sign. It, it's a statement, but it doesn't do anything to you. And, and he says, that's why one's coming who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you in a way that matters. Of which water baptism cannot be that. It's not equal to that. And so, again, when, when people use water baptism as a means of grace, they do err. <clears throat> So some have interpreted this idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. That and fire is is where uh, there's some differences that come along. Some have interpreted this to refer to 
being baptized by the Spirit in a charismatic sense. And so fire speaks of Pentecost. Remember when, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples, it looked like clothes of fire. And so they say, well, that shows you that, that we're not only going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, but the second blessing, uh, it speaks of the power that comes with the Holy Spirit. And, and it's, it's something that the charismatics would use to, to uh, kind of, you know, teach what they believe. <clears throat> Others see it as referring to the trials and suffering that comes from being saved. So the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit is when we're converted. That's not the only baptism Christians suffer that or, or have, and that's being baptized in fire, trials, tribulation. Well, that's biblical. There's a sense in which Christians shall be put under trial and tribulation uh, that's a means to serve the Lord, but I, I don't think that's necessarily what's being talked about here because the latter part of the verse, verse or excuse me, verse 12, it has that's part of the context. And I think what he's doing there is explaining the fire. In other words, he says you're going to be baptized by two things. And, I, and I'll put it this way. Either one or the other. You're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit or you're going to be baptized by fire. So it's not the Christian baptized, baptism is two things. It's that there's only two different kinds of people in the world. Those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit that are saved, and those who are baptized by fire, and he explains fire in the following verse. His immediately after he says fire, he says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. And, and the, the threshing of wheat is a euphemism in Scripture for the judgment, and so. He's going to, uh, there's going to be a judgment. And what happens? You throw the wheat up, or you throw the, the kernels up, and the wheat drops, and the shaft is carried away. And the shaft, it says, is burned. So you got those by the, who are saved by the Holy Spirit, but the other ones who are baptized by fire are the ones who reject Christ, and they will suffer uh, the uh, judgment of God. And I think that would be, in, its, in this context, when he's talking about two different kinds of baptism, and one isn't a good one. It's a baptism of judgment. <clears throat> so, anyway, you can, you can delve into that a little bit more and see what you come up with, but uh, that, I think, seems to be uh, the context that makes the most sense. Anyway, that brings us then to Jesus' baptism in verse 13. Um There's some interesting things to think about. You've got to remember that you've got John's baptism, you're still in the Old Testament. John's baptism, uh, by and large, uh, really, up until the time Jesus was baptized himself, and John was able to identify him. He was almost immediately thrown into prison very soon after that thrown into prison. So most of John's baptism was, was looking forward to becoming Messiah. And preparing for that. But, but many who were baptized by John didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know that Jesus was going to die on the cross. I mean, the disciples didn't know that the night before it happened. And John surely didn't understand how it was going to take place. He knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God, but they, the Jewish mind at that time could not fathom the Messiah hanging on a cross. So 
So the the uh, John's baptism was a little incomplete. It looked forward to the gospel, but it but, but he didn't understand a lot of what was going on. He knew a Messiah was coming, but he wasn't identified necessarily. And keeping that in mind, in Acts one twenty one. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must come become with us a witness to his resurrection. The baptism of Jesus marks the beginning of his outward ministry, his public ministry. And so there were those who were with him, obviously the disciples were with him from that time forward. Uh, when they go to replace Judas, they say, okay, it wasn't just the twelve that were there. There were many other people who witnessed Jesus' baptism, but they weren't part of that twelve. When they were looking to replace Judas, they wanted someone who was a witness to the whole ministry of Jesus. And so that's what's going on there. And so the baptism of Jesus is significant for a few reasons. It marks the beginning of Jesus' official ministry. And secondly, and connected with the first, it was when he was anointed or filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So it was, in, as we'll see here when Jesus says it's to fulfill all righteousness, the Old Testament foretold of the Messiah being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so that had to take place at some point, and this is when it takes place. This is God officially anointing or, or pointing out that this is my beloved son, this is the Messiah. And then thirdly, the baptism of Jesus was a public sign to John, the Baptist, that he was the Messiah. We saw that last week in John chapter 1, where uh, John was told that the one that you see, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a, of a dove, is going to be the Messiah. And that took place when John uh, baptized, because, you know, John at first didn't want to baptize. Why would I baptize you? And uh, it had to be done. And so when he, when it happened, of course, that was Jesus' anointing. And John knew, okay, now I know specifically that this is the Messiah. We find out from John 1 also that some of the disciples witnessed Jesus' baptism. Not all were there. Uh, like you know, we read in John that Andrew, when John points out that this is the Messiah, Andrew starts to follow him. In fact, two of John's disciples start to follow Jesus instead of John, which would make sense. And then the next day he goes and he gets Peter, his brother, and says, hey, we found the Messiah. And so it's at this time that the, that the disciples get called, but they leave for a time. Next week we'll, we'll get into Jesus' temptations, and that was... 40 a days, we know that took place at least 40 days for all that to take place. And apparently, Jesus, um, after he calls the, the, the disciples, there's about six months to a year where he's doing other things. They're not, they don't stay with him all the time. And then at, at, the, at that point, at, after six months to a year, uh, he goes, and remember, we'll see here in chapter four, or um, chapter five, where they, he finds them fishing. After the temptation, and he says, come follow me. And then they follow him, you know, full time, you might say. And so, that gives you a little bit of a time. Like, as you read the uh, the Gospels, you notice that there's, it sounds like there's almost two callings. There's one, there's an initial one, but then there's one where they come and they stay with him uh, 
full time. So just some things to keep in mind. And so the disciples were with him some during the first year, but they weren't with him full time as, uh, as Acts points out, that there were other disciples who believed in Jesus. They didn't stay with Jesus at all, maybe from time to time, like Matthias who took Judas's place. So Jesus comes and he says, I need to, I want you to baptize me. And understandably, John is confused at the request. He refused the Pharisees' request because he knew they were unworthy. They, they, there was not any repentance. They didn't believe in a Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah to redeem them. And he, he, um, but, but the fact that, remember, at this time, he didn't know for sure that Jesus was the Messiah. But, but what does he say here? He says, I am not worthy to even carry your uh, sandals. I should be baptized by you. And I think that's a testament to the fact of Jesus' life up to this point where John, being his cousin, knew him to some degree. And he knew him to be so morally upright that uh, he said, you don't need to be baptized for repentance because, you know, you're, you're uh, probably the most moral person that John even knew. So, because remember, he, he didn't see him as the Messiah yet. But he understood him to be of, of, of a moral character that nobody else came close to. So I think that was interesting in and of itself. But of course, it still begs the question, why did Jesus want to be baptized? Well, was it because John had been with God, had, had been God sent, and so Jesus' baptism kind of gave validity to John's ministry? Well, yeah, I guess you could say it probably did that. But, as we think about Jesus being baptized, he's standing in the place of sinner, where sinners stood. He went down in the waters and people who were repenting, sinners who were repenting did. So, by being baptized, he's identifying in some way with sinners. He pointed out to what he was going to do later on on their behalf, where he was going to be in the place of sinners on the cross. He also institutes baptism in a, as, as an act of identification of the kingdom. By, by him being baptized, then he's he is taking baptism and putting his stamp of approval on it, you might say. This, because John's baptism was, among other things, identifying with the kingdom of God. And so it makes sense that it's carried over into Christian baptism. And so this is done in one way by recording for us that they came up out of the water. The only reason to go down into the water was to be immersed. And so it was used as as an initiation of his ministry and thus a time of his anointing. It it was a, they when they went down and he baptized and immersed him in water, it looked forward to his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrections. And so again, it only makes sense that we would be baptized in the same way. I had a college roommate who turned Presbyterian soon after he left school, and we uh, debated that a little bit until he got tired of it. And uh, he uh, told me, I, you know, I said, well, you know, we're identifying with Christ. We're, bat- we're immersed because we're identifying ourselves with Christ. And he says, well, yeah, but it's okay to sprinkle because um, the Holy Spirit comes down upon us. We're sprinkled with the Holy Spirit, and so by sprinkling somebody, you're identifying with the Spirit. 
Well, yes, it's the problem. We, we're never told to identify with the Holy Spirit. We're told to identify with Christ. We don't believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in Christ for salvation. So it seems like a, a self-refuting argument, but such as it is. John's baptism was one that pictured repentance and being purified for the coming king. Christian baptism more identifies with Christ's work, but both speak to moving from one kingdom into a new kingdom, right? And so you see why it's so uh, it's so easily transferred into the uh, new covenant baptism. So John's baptism wasn't the full gospel, but it pointed a people to the one who would save them. There's an interesting account here in Acts 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he only knew the baptism of John, he began to speak out fearlessly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. You can imagine, it was, it was a time of transition. Here, he had been baptized in lieu of the Savior. He knew that the Messiah would come. Perhaps he knew... Uh, about the cross and the resurrection, uh, it indicates he, he knew something about Jesus, but he didn't know all. He didn't know about the Christian baptism. He didn't know about being baptized in the in the name of Jesus for sure. And so they explained to him more fully uh, what what he didn't know that they fill in the the uh, the, uh, the cracks you might say of his knowledge. I would imagine that they also rebaptized him. In the name of Jesus. You say, well, how do you know that? If you want to read in the next chapter, they come to another group of people, much like uh, Apollos, who had were baptized by John, but did not understand that the Messiah had come, that they, they didn't have all the information, and they says they rebaptized him in Jesus at that point. So you, can, you kind of see this transition period, which helps us think understand what's going on here. So, let's just uh, say one more thing here about this idea of to fulfill all righteousness. What did Jesus mean when he says to fulfill all righteousness? Because there is no place in the law, in the Old Testament, that says you have to be baptized in water. So what's Jesus referring to? And I think it's to bring up the completion, to completion, the promised righteousness that had been foretold in the Old Testament. In other words, that which was going to be accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the baptism of our Lord set in motion the final phase necessary to provide righteousness to lost, unworthy sinners. So in other words, in other words, uh, for uh, Jesus to uh, save us, to redeem us, certain things had to happen. And one of the things that had to happen was that he had to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that was going to take place at his baptism. Because the, as we've said before, the anointings of the Old Testament, the prophets, priests, and king, uh, looked forward to the prophet, priest, and king. They were kind of like prophecies that this was going to happen. So, just as the Lord would identify who he wanted to be king or priest or whatever, to do a work, so 
when his son came into the world, he identifies, this is the one that I have chosen to do the work. So he, so it had to happen. Furthermore, Jesus' baptism identified Jesus to John, the Messiah, as we've already talked about. Um, and then finally, this was his anointing in which the Old Testament identifies God's choice for a specific task. Alright, so that's, that's what's going on here to some degree. There's, there's an interesting statement in Psalm 2 that I think helps us uh, know what some of, that kind of just helps us fill in some of the gaps here. In Psalm 2, verse 6, we read, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But there's something here that speaks to the Lord beginning a kingdom, right? He, he says, I will set my king, and it's Jesus, obviously, on my holy hill. Uh, and he says that this is going to happen in a day when I say, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so when did this take place? When was the coronation? This is kind of speaking of the coronation of Jesus, right, as king. When did all this take place? Well, I read one commentator who said that uh, that took place when the wise men came and they offered gifts to Jesus and recognized him as king, and that was Jesus' coronation. Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, interesting thought, but I don't think that's what happened. The coronation is when you actually become king and the crown is set upon your head, right? It didn't take place in, in, in the manger or in, in uh, Bethlehem when the wise men were there. It didn't take place here. Remember when David was anointed king? Remember uh, Samuel went through all his brothers, finally said, don't you have any other brothers? And uh, here's David comes and he, uh, he anoints David as king. Well, David wasn't king. He was still going to be many years before David became king. So Jesus is being anointed here set apart to do his work in order that he might become king. But we find out that, of course, his coronation takes place when he ascends on high and he sits down on the throne of God. And that's when he says, this day, today I've begotten you. I think this is the reference to that. There's a sense in which people say that Jesus is eternally begotten because he's eternally the Son of God. But there's a sense in which as far as his kingdom comes and, and sitting down upon a throne, uh, it says today, this is the time in which you are begotten in that sense. And so, uh, again, just some verses that point this out. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which to any of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. So again, he brings in that terminology of Psalm 2, speaking about the day in which Christ ascended, on high after doing his work and becomes the king of this mediatorial kingdom that we've talked about. And then, we don't, won't take time to do it, but if you go to Peter's sermon in Acts 2, 
Peter also quotes from Psalm, this, this from uh, Psalm 2, and he says that that took place when Jesus ascended. He, he connects it to the ascension. So, again, just to kind of help you, give you some idea of how, what all these verses mean, how the Bible is coming together and being fulfilled in Jesus. <clears throat> and so I think by all this, we can make some sense out of this phrase, fulfill our righteousness. As I said, there's no law that said he had to be baptized, but there's plenty that spoke of a forerunner. So Jesus was identifying himself as uh, his for, with John the Baptist, his forerunner, when he was baptized. And this was going to be when the Spirit would come down, when, it, when he would be anointed and set apart for, for the, this work of redemption. And so the Old Testament anointing was a public statement that this man was officially commissioned by God to do this work. And so this is Jesus' open public anointing by the Holy Spirit. And also, not just anointing, but it says here, this is when he is filled with the Holy Spirit. So a little bit more going on than just the Father saying, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Jesus is also being filled with the full measure of the Holy Spirit in a way that he obviously wasn't before. And so that in itself is a little interesting, or a whole lot interesting. We find this being spoken of in Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And again, this is speaking in a sense past tense. This is really the Messiah. And of course, Jesus quotes this in Nazareth, remember? And... uh in past tense, because it was at that point past tense. So I, I, it's interesting that it speaks of future things, but it speaks as if it's already done. This is the Lord speaking, so it's no, no surprise. But anyway, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Well, we've already seen he's proclaimed the day of vengeance. We saw that with John the Baptist doing that as well. But it is the, the day is coming when the Lord will anoint me, but he will also anoint me with the measure, with the full measure of the Holy Spirit. So because of this, in, in other verses like chapter 4, verse 1, where it says that the Jesus was led at that time by the Spirit. The other uh, Gospels say he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Because there's a time in which Jesus did not have the full measure of the Holy Spirit, but now as he begins his ministry, he receives the full measure of the Holy Spirit. I think that we could, there's, some, there's something that, uh, that there's some implications in all that. I tend to think that Jesus lived, well, also Luke 2, 52, I didn't, I didn't write that down, I don't think. No. Um, where it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Remember that was said after he uh, visited the temple at 12 years old. So, before he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he increased in wisdom. He increased in stature. He grew in favor with man and God. So he was growing in his experience, in his understanding, all right? But it's interesting to think about because 
There are those who believe that Jesus, when he was born and a baby, still had full awareness of himself. So, so even as he's crying to have his diaper changed as a baby, he knows who he is. It's not something I would argue with, but I don't think so. Because Jesus had to live as a man by faith to earn a righteousness to be imputed to us. And we'll get more in this in the temptation. Because that's that's we're gonna spend two weeks just talking about the temptation because it's vitally important to understand what's going on there. But I would say this I tend to think that Jesus lived his life before this time before his baptism, as any other man. And he learned who he was, not because he knew who he was, or or, or just had it revealed to him, but he learned as he studied the Old Testament, and he put two and two together, as we did in Matthew chapter 1, he realized who he was. And so that by the time he's 12, and he's talking to these, these scholars, He's saying, I, I'm, I'm so much to be about my father's business. He knew who he was because he had a perfect mind and he perfectly understood the scriptures. Now, again, there, you said there's a little speculation going on there, but I, but I think that, it may, again, he's growing. And the Bible says he grew in wisdom. And now it seems he's given back a more full knowledge of himself as he's dwelt by the Holy Spirit in a fuller sense of his divinity that he had before his baptism. Now, he could never be any more or less divine than he always was, right? Um, but he had to learn. He had to become a perfect man. He had to learn what suffering was. He had to learn what it is to obey by faith. He had to experience it. He had to do it. Just one verse that brings this out. Uh, Hebrews 5.8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect. It's not that Jesus wasn't always perfect in a moral sense, in a divine sense, but he became perfect as he, in every situation, does the right thing. He earned a righteousness. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It was something, Jesus wasn't the, um, wasn't in a position to redeem mankind when he was born. It's something that took that took place over time, and so that now, at his uh, um, uh, at his uh, excuse me, uh, at baptism, and the things he's going through, he becomes a perfect sacrifice. But he had to earn that salvation first of all. And then again, verse ten, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that designation that's, that's what's happening. Now, so you, so you see how the, all this stuff is being brought together. And so in verse 17 of our text, come to the end here, and it says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, whether they, everybody standing there understood it or not, we're being told that that's what God said. And so even at this point, he fully had to please the Father, and so is attested to by the Godhead. The Father says this, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. This will, the Father saying this will be done at the transfiguration, and then in the resurrection. In other words, at, at the transfiguration, the Father said, this is my beloved Son, 
The resurrection is a statement because God raised Jesus because he accepted his sacrifice. It, to a lesser degree, it's the miracles because of by, by the Lord doing miracles. It was an attestation that he was the son of God, right? And so, when all this took place, the Jewish mind would go back to Psalm 2, where the Lord speaks to his son. said, you know, to, to Isaiah 41.1, Behold my servant with whom I have chosen and whom my soul delights. See, this is who I delight. And so when they hear the Father saying this, that's a public statement of what they already knew the Old Testament to say. And so it's no wonder that Jesus says this must happen to fulfill our righteousness. Because not one Old Testament prophecy or type or shadow could ever be missed or Jesus couldn't be the suitable sacrifice. The Old Testament had to be fulfilled perfectly in Christ. And then the next amazing thing to see here is that in the, this is the first New Testament reference, even though we're still, in a sense, between the Testaments, because the New Testament doesn't begin until the resurrection. Yet, this is the first a time in the New Testament writings that we see all three persons of the Godhead at one time. It is between the Testaments, in a sense, the Old and New Testaments, that the Trinity is revealed to us. Because it's, it's hinted at in the Old Testament. It's talked, it's developed in the New Testament, but right now we're kind of in between. And we see it finally being revealed clearly in the baptism of Jesus Christ. As Jesus submits to the work of redemption, the Spirit indwells him, and the Father commissions him. Much like what happens to us when we're saved, right? We are uh, called, we are indwelt, and we uh, we submit to that, and we are commissioned to go and preach the gospel. And so the statement by the Father is a declaration that Jesus is without blemish. There's no person that God could ever say, I am well pleased with, other than himself, uh, you know, or the God, you know, a divine person, because we're all sinners. And that's, that's, so that's the fulfillment of uh, Deuteronomy 17.1. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which there is a blemish, any defect whatsoever, for whatever for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So when John says this is the, the whole of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, everybody knew if, if that's the, the case, he's got to be perfect. He's got to be morally without blemish. So the Father is testifying that he will accept and be pacified by the sacrifice. And this is why the very next day John can identify him clearly as the Lamb of God. So we're we're done here. But let me just point out a couple of verses here to remind ourselves that these things should give us every reason to rejoice and give thanks that Jesus is who he says he is. We read here in John 1.7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can God love sinners? Well, we know it's only possible because of Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians 1.6, To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, the Beloved, capital B, Jesus, we being placed in Christ, having our sins forgiven, 
and his righteousness given to us, we now are loved as the Father loves the Son. And that's the heart of the gospel. The gospel isn't that God loves everybody. God loves his creation. Like in, in John 3.16, God loves his creation. He loves mankind so that he sent a Savior. But it's only the ones that he loves in a saving way in which he places in Jesus Christ that have peace with God. So I'm glad that, that my salvation isn't up to me to keep going and that i got to keep on the good side of, the, of God because Christ has done it for me. And so we're as safe as Christ is. If the Father can ever turn us back on Jesus, he can turn us back on us. But since he's well pleased with Jesus, and, and Jesus, of course, being God, is perfectly righteous, then he'll never turn his back on us. And that's the essence of the gospel. Well, we'll close there today, but the proof that we are in Christ will be seen a few chapters later when Jesus teaching us to pray says, when you pray, say this, our Father. Again, something that you didn't read in the Old Testament, but now, in Christ, joint heirs with Christ, we he is our peace has been made and he is our father that we can pray to for blessings. Alright? So we'll stop there today. Any questions or comments?